Welcome back to Away From The Bench, where we're exploring the changing landscape of research and academia through the experiences and lives of scientists and their allies. As always, you can get in touch with the show on Twitter at AFTB underscore podcast. Let me know what you think. In this episode, I wanted to talk to Matthew Sinton about launching the STEM Village, an initiative that aims to build a community for LGBTQ plus scientists in Scotland. I also felt this was a great opportunity to hear his story about the scenic route he took to reach the start line of his PhD, an experience I can sympathise with and I think will resonate with you too. I hope you enjoy it. Hello everybody. Uh, today, today I'm having... A conversation with uh, Matthew Sinton. Matthew Sinton is joining me, a PhD student in Edinburgh. And that's enough introduction for me. I'm just going to let Matt, Matthew uh, introduce yourself, please, to av- avoid me kind of like making a ham-fisted effort of it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, totally put me on the spot there. Um, yeah, so as, <laughs> so as you said, um, I'm Matthew. Um, I'm a PhD student um, at Edinburgh University, like David. Uh, but I'm actually just finishing now. Um, I just handed in my thesis last week. Um, so, yeah, my PhD journey is is almost done. And I'll be starting a postdoc soon um, at the University of Glasgow. And, yeah, what else about me? Um, so I last year started an initiative called The STEM Village, which is for um, the LGBT uh, community who work or study um, science, technology, engineering, um, or maths. And, um, yeah, I'm not really sure what else to do. <laughs> no, I, I, I feel like I've totally botched the, the introduction there, but we're just going to go with it, Matthew. We're just going to go with it. And, and if I, if I had a, a producer or a sound engineer, I would kind of insert a round of applause there for ha- not, not only mashing out a thousand words a day to hand in your uh, thesis, but also, uh, lining up a, a postdoctoral position at the same time so we can just we can just imagine there's a cheering crowd and that you're now being invited up on stage to for an acceptance speech just like the oscars um yeah what a botched introduction by myself yours was an excellent effort but lots of stuff to talk about there um i always end up talking to people kind of first thing in the morning because that suits me and uh, thankfully it often suits them as well so when i ask them how their day's going they've really only been at it for um, you know, an hour and a half or something like that, maybe a couple of hours or longer if they've got kids. How's your day going so far, Matthew? Um, well, it would have been better if I hadn't been rudely awoken by my husband's alarm going off at six o'clock this morning. Um, but no, it's been good so far. So, you know, I, I got up around 6.30, uh, took the dog out for a walk, made some coffee, um, watched the news for a while, turned the news off very quickly because who wants to watch the news right now? Um, yes, it's been pretty relaxed. How's your morning been? Not bad. Um, my, I didn't have a dog to wake me up, but the kids did. Um, and we're both in Edinburgh. From my window, it looks like a pretty pleasant morning out there. Um, and if you've got all your work done with your 
you're writing, then it's probably uh, a weight off your shoulders. And I've no doubt the the air smells that little bit sweeter when you're when you're having a walk. Absolutely. I mean, I'm actually so um, I've moved to Glasgow now. Oh, okay. So I moved to Glasgow in January um, because my husband got a job here. Mm-hmm. Um, and sadly, as is typical for Glasgow, it is grey. It's a bit rainy, and we live right next to the motorway. So the air was smelling a bit sweeter until uh, I opened the window. <laughs> As a Glaswegian who lived there for probably about half my life so far, um, yeah, it, it is a bit, it is a bit damper. And <laughs> I, I would have asked, you know, if you had a nice view from the window, but uh, we won't, we won't go into how how, <laughs> how 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 busy the motorway is looking. <laughs> but actually, we're we're quite lucky. We live next to Kelvin Grove Park, so uh, we've got the motorway out the back, but then out the front, we've got all the trees. So it's it's quite a nice view. You're on uh, the West End, Great Western Road kind of area? Yeah, not far from Great, Great Western Road. But um, yeah, we haven't had much time to explore because you know we moved here in January and then I was away for a conference uh, for a couple of weeks and then got back and then lockdown happened. So um, only just starting to explore Glasgow now. Kelvin Grove is a, Kelvin Grove Park's a lovely, lovely green space to spend a bit of time in. Yeah, it's so nice. And it's, it's really handy, you know, with having, having a dog. Just being able to take them around there, and and it's so friendly here. Like everyone wants to stop and chat, and everyone wants to meet the dog. Would you like to comment then on whether whether Glasgow is more friendly than Edinburgh, or uh, do you have a, an opinion there? <laughs> that is an evil question. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, I am a Glaswegian living in Edinburgh, though, so I'm bucking the trend here. <laughs> no, I think it. You definitely notice the difference with the people. Um, <laughs> I think because it seems like there's a lot more Scottish people actually living in Glasgow than there are in Edinburgh. <laughs> I remember, like as a as a young naive kind of undergraduate student arriving in Edinburgh and being genuinely surprised that I rarely heard a Scottish voice at the University yeah. of Edinburgh. Like I said, a, a young and naive person, but nonetheless, <laughs> that's that's brilliant. What a what a good start. What a good start to the day. Um, we were discussing just before we started recording that we, we, we actually crossed paths about, was it five years ago now, I think? Yeah, about five, maybe even six. Uh, when you were you were interviewing for a PhD position and, and I was I was showing you around the building. I, I recall kind of trying to impress you by showing you all the all the fancy microscopes down in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> It's exactly the same thing anybody else would do. Look at how many microscopes we've got, and they've all got lasers. Wow. <laughs> at that um, stage, I remember being really impressed. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I'm talking to some school school students this afternoon about being a scientist, so I'll just tell them about how many microscopes we've got. They'll, they'll be impressed. No doubt. No doubt. Um, but that was um, – was that the – beginning of your uh inverted commas phd journey or the kind of you know because because i think i think if 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 we can put these links into the show notes but i think you're quite interesting to talk to about how you got to the start of your phd it's not necessarily the traditional route it's not you know crazy weird but you know it doesn't follow the 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 traditional route or thinking uh, Mm -hmm. strategy of finish your undergraduate do a master's do a phd kind of one after the other did it um yeah so when i I, when i finished my undergrad degree i was really interested in the prospect of going into academia um like i was really well i was a complete nerd i still am um not gonna lie um so i was i really wanted to 
to do research. So I went ahead and found a PhD program and um, didn't honestly at the time didn't really give much thought to what I was getting myself into. Um, I heard basically the title of the project, saw where it was and thought, oh my God, this sounds amazing. This sounds great. And turned up and it was a really, really challenging experience for two reasons. Partly, I was, I would say I was quite naive and not quite mature enough to embark on, I think, what a PhD requires. And also, I think the lab that I went into didn't necessarily appreciate that I was coming straight out of undergrad, didn't have the experience and would need a lot more support than somebody who had maybe had a master's or had had a few years of work experience, that kind of thing. So, you know, the two things really didn't match up. So after, I don't know, it was like six, six to nine months, I said, enough's enough and, and left. And then did some temping jobs and thought, you know, I'm never going to get back into academia. Um, so I need to figure out what I'm going to do. You make it sound like a kind of a bit of a snap decision to leave a PhD after eight to nine months. Was it a snap decision or were you kind of like wrestling with this decision for um, six to seven months of those eight to nine months? I actually, I, I did really wrestle with it. Um, so it probably was, I don't know, after sort of four months or so, I was starting to realize that this really wasn't working as well. So, you know, I was um, thinking about what should I do? I reached out to my supervisor at the time. I reached out to uh, the person in charge of looking after the postgrads, you know, arranged meetings, those kinds of things. And at the time, so I, you know, I, I did mention I was, it was taking a toll on my mental health. And I've suffered with depression in the past, and I could see that I was starting to go back into a kind of depressive phase. So, you know, I and I was open about that because I know the best way to deal with these things is to be open so that you can get help when you need it. Um, and basically got nothing in return. And so there, there was no support there. And there was no support from other people in the lab after I reached out. So I, I did think long and hard about it because one of the things that was mentioned a few times by different people was if you leave a PhD, you will never get back into a PhD. You will never get back into academia. It will basically ruin your chances going forward. So that, of course, that, that did take its toll. And then, you know, when you make that decision to leave, it, it's really hard because then you think you failed. I think there's a lot of kind of tropes that go around like that in academia. And, and the same is true of when people finish a PhD. You know, there's this question of do you stay in academia or do you leave? And it's given as this either or decision, you know, that there is no way back in, which, you know, I just don't buy. <laughs> No, absolutely. I, I agree. And I've, I've heard of several people where they've said, you know what, I'm going to go and do something else for a while. And then they come back. I think, you know, because there are reasonable people who realize that life is not a linear path. And why should someone be punished for saying, well, I want to go and do something else for a while while I figure this out? Doesn't make you any less of a scientist. Absolutely. So what did you go on to do? Did you have something kind of lined up or did you have a, a bit of break to help yourself or what did you do next? So, um, following that, um, yeah, I was doing some temping. So I worked in a hospital lab and, um, I was doing jobs, just odd jobs like that. Um, while I was trying to think what I wanted to do. 
And another thing that I toyed with while I was doing my undergrad was whether or not I wanted to become a teacher. Um, whether I wanted to become a secondary school science teacher. So I started to look into it and found that actually there was, um, oh, what's going to say? There was, uh, there were places on a course for uh, chemistry teachers and they were really looking for people um, who had not just a chemistry background, but possibly other sciences. So having a biology background that, that worked out. And yeah, so I just, I have to say, I didn't give it too much thought at that point. I knew I needed to do something. This was something that had been in the back of my head for some time. So I just went for it. Um, and I'd never actually stepped foot in a school since I'd been at school. I've Looking back, I probably should have gone to get some experience. But, you know, again, that naivety comes in. And, um, yeah, so that was a two-year course. And it was in the second year that we started going into schools and actually getting the experience. And I have to say, some of the experiences were really good. Um, for example, I was given the opportunity to teach what was called a nurture group, which is where you have a very small class and those children have come from uh, challenging backgrounds where you know they've had a really rough time in life or they have special educational needs or you know it's a whole range of of things where they feel it's better for them to be taught in a small class. And in the beginning, that was a really, it was really difficult to build a rapport with them. And it was the class that I kind of dreaded in the beginning. And by the end of the term with them, they were my favorite class. You know, it was, it was really, really nice. I really enjoyed that. But throughout the, the teaching, throughout the teacher training, I realized that whilst there were some really rewarding moments, overall, it, it wasn't for me. Um, I, I think teachers deserve the utmost respect. And I think, honestly, I think it's a vocation. You know, I think that's how, how to put it. Yeah, I think you have to have a vocation to go into teaching, to love it, and, you know, to do the amazing jobs that teachers do. Um, and I think I went in it, I went into it for the wrong reasons. I think I went into it because I thought, oh, it's just something else that I can do rather than considering what was really required from the job. Um, which was why, you know, at the end of it, I, I thought, you know what, I want, I want to go back to research. I want to give that another go because I think that's where my passions really lie. And I didn't think that I could do justice to the job. Um, I didn't, yeah, I didn't think I could do justice to it and deliver what schools and kids needed from me. Teaching is a very challenging job from, um, some friends and, and relatives that, that, um, have become teachers and others that much like yourself decided it wasn't from them. Um, you know, standing at the front of a class and teaching that kind of, you know, stereotype is just scratching the surface of a teacher's role and it's all the other stuff that goes along with it that that makes it such a such a challenging job yeah absolutely um it's yeah not just delivering the actual lessons but actually take taking care of the kids and you know dealing with actually yeah how to design the lessons that you know you you have to plan ahead of time to think well 
how are the kids going to respond to this? How are they, you know, is this going to engage them? Which particular children in this class may respond in this way or they may respond in that way? So I have to be careful with that. You know, there's an awful lot of preparation that really goes into it. So you, you know, you really have to know what you're doing. So you didn't go into teaching, but you trained as a teacher. Um, and now we're back into the position where we were two years ago of wondering kind of what to do next. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, so at, at this stage, so interestingly, I was, well, I, I think it's interesting. Um, I've been I, in these positions as well, Matthew, like this isn't meant as a kind of like, oh, you're back to square one. This is, you know, I, I can, I can, I can sympathize with these, these situations. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of feeling of, yeah, that pit in your stomach where you think, oh, God, what now? Um, but it was actually, so after I finished the teacher training, I did some supply teaching because I did think to myself, well, okay, give it a go. Actually see how it is when you're not training and when you're more into it, doing a job more independently. So I did that and I went into a school just before Christmas and they offered offered me a six-month position. And it was when I said yes that suddenly my heart sank and I just thought, no, 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 no. You're making the wrong decision here. Um, this is not a good idea. So I let them know immediately because there was another candidate. And I said, you know, I think you, know, you should probably give it to the other candidate. And that was when I made the decision that I wanted to go back to academia and to give it another shot. And I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I made up my mind that I was going to do whatever I could to do it. So, um, so I moved to Edinburgh uh, because I'd lived in Edinburgh previously. So I had friends, friends there, and I decided whatever it took, I was going to either get a job. Well, no, at that stage, I think I just wanted to get a job um, at the university. So, you know, I started applying, um, seeing where that got me, um, obviously got a lot of knockbacks because I only had my undergrad and then no experience afterwards. And then two options opened up to me, um, one of which was um, there was a, a PI who knew some funding was coming in later in the year and said that he would be willing to consider me for a job as a research assistant. And then there was also a PhD position, which was with uh, Luke. Um, so I decided to, to have a go at both of them and see which see which one panned out um because yeah at that stage i wasn't entirely sure did i just want to have a job at the bench doing lab work or did i really want to kind of follow that academic training path kind of up into independence and so you had two options there did you did they stay as two options or did you you know uh, was that a decision that you you had to make or was it made for you Ultimately, ended up being made for me in that I I did apply for the PhD position, and yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I absolutely bombed at that interview. <laughs> <laughs> I look back and the things the things that I was presenting in the interview. So I was presenting my undergraduate project uh, for my PhD interview, and I think I was showing raw data. And oh, look! Isn't this cool? This is fantastic. And and yeah, when I look back, I. Yeah, it makes me shudder a bit. <laughs> These are the things that you only gain with a bit of a bit of uh, perspective and and maturity. You know, you, you no doubt could could um, 
stress over how poorly you you did that but at the same time you know you were successful in getting as far as interview which is far more than a lot of people uh, achieve yeah absolutely absolutely and i'm grateful for that and actually and looking back you know i'm grateful for most of the paths i took because you know it, it got me where i am now and I'm, I'm very much a believer that if you're happy where you are now then you shouldn't regret in general should not regret your past choices so you took the ra job then I did. I did. And I was an RA for a while. And then my boss said to me, because he, he felt that I should go on to do a PhD. And I still wasn't conv- completely convinced that a PhD was the right path for me. But he said, well, at the very least, if you want to continue as an, a research assistant, you need to do a master's degree. So why don't you do a master's by research um, with me? And we see where that takes us. So I did. And yeah, it was a few months into it where I was, I, you know, I'd been with, with him at this point, but for about six months, maybe nine months, or around six months, nine months, that seems to be a thing for me. Um, and I realized how much I was enjoying it, that I was really getting along well with it. It was exciting. Um, and that's when I started to think, yeah, I want to do a PhD. Yeah, because with a, with, if you're doing a master's by research, then there's no teaching element. You're you're essentially you're doing a PhD, but without the pressure of, you know, or, or, or with the, the safety net of, I'm just doing a master's by research, and I I know I don't have as much experience, and so you're learning a bit more at that time. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that that was pretty much what what got me to that stage, and then I had one of the side projects that I was working on was with a researcher from the Centre for Cardiovascular Science. And he was telling me about the British Heart Foundation PhD programme. And so I started to look into that and I had a few conversations with him. And that was that was how I got onto the, the PhD programme. Well, because that, sorry, that's how I learned about the PhD programme and started to uh, just put everything into applying for it. Did you apply for other PhD programs or PhD positions or was your heart set on the the BHF one? I also, I applied for, I can't remember the exact name of it, but there was a Wellcome Trust. Um, it was, it was an immunology based program. Um, but at that stage, I, even though I was working on a project to do with inflammation and tissue repair, they're like, well, this is more to do with global diseases and things like that. So it's not really the same. So you're not really suitable for the position and so i applied for that and i applied for the british heart foundation one and there there were another couple that i was going to apply for but thankfully the british heart foundation one panned out and so you know but that was one that i was really focused on i really spent a lot of time preparing a lot of time having like mock interviews and uh, going over my application over and over i really obsessed over that one and it paid off it's it's pretty stressful isn't it when you're applying for something that you know you've you feel like you've you've made such a mature decision to apply for and commit but you at the same time you know they're ridiculously competitive <laughs> yeah i think i think this program i don't know how it, how it was for yours but this program i think had between 150 and 200 applicants is and for four places you know, it's crazy um so you really you know I, again i don't know about you but Although I really wanted it, I didn't really believe that it was going to happen because it's just so competitive. 
Yeah, it's like a lot of um, a lot of science, a lot of academia that there's this there's this subjective element uh, to it that you know two people can be equally competitive on paper, but when it comes down to it, it's still a human being making a, making a, a judgment call about you. Um, so there's a little bit of a little bit of luck in there. Anyway, uh, must have been a pretty darn good feeling when that email dropped through your inbox. Yeah, I still remember being in the lab. I'm, I'm sure I've yeah I've talked about this before, but yeah, I remember just. It was kind of, it was getting on for like five o'clock and I'm the kind of person that I'm, I must be really annoying because, you know, I'll send emails like, by the way, I know it's been a few days, but just wondering, do you know when I might hear? And I think there's like <laughs> kind of part of me that's hoping that if I'm proud enough that <laughs> someone will just give me an answer either way. I think I'm just impatient. Um, and so, yeah, I wasn't expecting to hear anything that day because it was around five o'clock and, you know, I was planning to finish my work in the lab soon and the email dropped in saying congratulations if you want to take up the place please let us know in the next week i think i let them know in the next 30 seconds and then just uh one of my lab mates came in and was like is everything okay because i think i was just dancing around (laughs) really excited uh but it was it was the best feeling because you know it's, it's a culmination of years of of work really you know all those different things that you've done over time finally come together into you getting something that you really want i i I can definitely sympathize with that for me it it was the feeling of 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 vindication and acceptance that yes i was good enough to do this that that was pretty much it it's not like as i said it's you didn't have a, a circuitous route to the start line but it was far from far from direct and we can obviously spin these to, to 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 make it sound like this is a good way of doing it. But what do you think you gained from not going straight from an undergrad to a master's to a PhD? And do you think it prepared you? How do you think it prepared you differently? Um, how was your perspective when you started on academia? And do you think you've followed that kind of through for the past uh, three or four years? So I think... For me, you know, having, having gone straight from undergrad into a PhD and then taken the, the long road through, um, I think what it gave me was maturity, for one thing. And I, first of all, I think this is a very personal thing. I think some people, they finish their undergrad and they are more than prepared for doing a PhD. But for, for me, and I suspect a lot of people, I think I needed that time to try out different things to figure out what I liked, what I don't like, that kind of thing. And I think when I started this PhD program, I started it with my eyes wide open. So whereas when I started the first PhD program, I was very naive and I thought, oh, this is all going to be wonderful. It's going to be uh, super exciting. It's an amazing sounding project. It's wonderful. Starting this time, I had much more of an idea of, um, how difficult it can be, how challenging, how if how isolating it can be in some circumstances, and how much resilience it can take in certain circumstances. Um, you know, when things are not working, and I, when I say resilience, I don't even mean in terms of if you're working with difficult people, because I work. My PhD has been in a wonderful lab. I've been really, really lucky. I get on so well with uh, the people in my lab. But, you know, when things are not working, you know, you spend, I spent a year trying to get 
molecular cloning to work. And at the end of it, I couldn't even use it. But you have to then kind of, you know, go home, sleep it off, and then say, okay, next, what's next? So I think, I think going into it with that perspective, that eyes wide open, slightly more, um, the expectations are a bit different. I think it makes the journey a bit more straightforward. I, I, I don't know about you, you know, going into it um, older as well, or if you find the same kind of thing. Um, let's see, what's my perspective on it? Because we're not, well, goodness, I'm getting interviewed all of a sudden. <laughs> um, I'm cautious. I'm cautious because I think for me, it would be very easy to fall into the trap of feeling that I had done a lot of things already and I knew what to do and how to do it. And so when things do get hard, I need to proactively remind myself to go and ask for help or ask people for help rather than feeling that I should know how to fix this is one of the things I I kind of try and remind myself that there's lots of people around me that I can ask for help. And so picking their brains about absolutely anything is a really good way to make the most of my time here, Um, whether it's feedback on experimental design or asking people to read what I've written um, or asking to help out with protocols that I've not done, all these things, like just kind of getting involved in in, in lots of things, uh, which would be the same advice for anybody. But I think, yeah, for me, it would be very easy to fall into the trap of thinking that I knew what to do. Yeah, I get that. I, I think having worked as a research assistant as well, although you know, just for a short period of time, then you know, doing that kind of thing beforehand, I can totally get that there is that self-expectation. I don't know if it happens very often, but you know, people that fell through the net for want of a better word or didn't continue on in academia immediately because they either weren't sure or they missed out on um, applications or they started and then decided it wasn't for them. What do you think from your experience would be good advice to get back in or to dip their toes back into it? Because I, because I think a, an important thing in academia would be accepting that not everybody is ready at that point when they finish their undergraduate or when they finish their master's to carry on doing stuff. And that a lot of people are basically talking about myself here, (laughs) (laughs) reach the conclusion or the maturity a lot later on in life about how to do things. And you're just not quite sure how to, how to get back in or justify those years that you you've spent in a, in, in a wilderness, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I do think that's an element of it, you know, that feeling that you have to justify why you did what you did. Um, I suspect that if you asked anybody on a selection panel, you don't need to justify it to the degree that I imagine you do. And it's probably just my my kind of insecurity. But uh, what do you think? Well, I th- I think, I mean, in, in terms of, of coming back into it, I think one of the best things that you can do is speak to people. Think about what your interests are and then get on Google, have a look see what different people are researching and reach out to a few of them and you know, make, make sure it's a personalized message, not just a bulk email and just say, you know, can we have a chat? Can I find out more about what you're doing? Do you have any opportunities that are coming up and see what happens? The, the worst, worst case scenario, either people don't reply or they say, I'm sorry, I, I can't help you. But best case scenario, somebody turns around and says, well, actually, have a summer position 
or I can have a conversation with you about what I'm doing and let's see if that interests you. I think that's I think that's great advice. I think it touches on what you you mentioned earlier when you were in your RA position and you got wind of a you know a bit of money that might be available or you could have these conversations. And I think that's really good advice that if you can get over the hurdle of approaching people, everybody wants to talk about their science and everybody wants the opportunity to get more staff in, you know, on the, you know, on the surface. And just having these conversations often, often opens up, opens up doors of what people are doing or gets your name known of your ambitions and stuff like that. I think that's really, I think that's some of the best advice, to be honest. (laughs) I mean, I think it's all the way through academia as well. It's it's talking to people because even if that person doesn't, necessarily have money or a position or what have you nine times out of ten they know somebody who does and having conversations with people is is just a nice thing to do in general it building relationships (laughs) (laughs) um we should talk very quickly about your phd because um for phd students often their research defines them for for four years i'm saying this with a big smile on my face because (laughs) i think it only polite matthew that you tell us what your PhD was about in a nutshell, because I've no doubt you're dying to do so, considering it's probably consumed your life for so long. <laughs> it has, it has. It's going to be strange studying something else. Um, so, <laughs> so the main focus is uh, the main focus of my PhD has been non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is, as the, the name suggests, where the liver becomes fatty, and it's really it's highly associated with obesity. So, of course, as obesity levels across the world are soaring, uh, more and more people are developing the disease. But it's actually it's a really tricky disease to model um, in the lab. So my PhD has been building on the work of a previous PhD student, where what we do is we take stem cells, um, human stem cells, and differentiate them to um, hepatocytes. I'm not sure how lay this has to be. but <laughs> Sorry. L- lay or lame? <laughs> a bit of both. <laughs> um, and then what we do is treat them with uh, diff- different compounds and make them fatty. And so that's the model that we use, and it's, it's working really well. And what I've been trying to find out is how the metabolism in those cells changes, so how the mitochondria change their function. And when mitochondria change their function, that can also impact on uh, gene transcription gene expression. So trying to look at how those changes in mitochondrial uh, respiration relate or don't relate to changes in gene expression. And that's been my my PhD. You're doing a postdoc in Glasgow. Are you doing in the same field or same techniques like or something completely different? So I'm, I'm switching a bit. So I, I'm staying within metabolism, but I'm switching to immunometabolism. So essentially, the project I'm going to be working on is looking at an aspect of the immune system and looking at how the cells alter their metabolism following parasitic infection. So it's kind of it's taking one part of what I did, but applying it to a new field. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, well, good luck with that. Thank you. Thanks. So as if finishing off a PhD wasn't busy enough, especially in your final year and starting to write up, you are, you're the instigator of the STEM village. (laughs) Is that right? That's right. Is it just you on your own? It's not. No, there are now about nine of us working together. That's quite a team. Yeah, yeah, it is. And people across the world, which is really, really helpful. <laughs> no, if it was me, I'd have gone far more bald than I'm already going. <laughs> I mean, so I, I, 
I when when I came up with it, I, I was building on the idea of things that other people had done. So there are um, other groups called um, there's LGBT STEM, there's Pride in STEM, um, and groups like that who they basically came together and said, look, there's a problem with lack of visibility for the LGBT community um, in different areas of STEM, and they looked at how they could start to address that. So they built online presences and they actually, they have a yearly symposium as well, which is called the LGBT Steminar, which I think is a great name. Um, yep. Everybody loves a pun. Exactly. Um, but then there was, there wasn't kind of an equivalent in Scotland. So, um, so that got me to thinking, well, do we need something in Scotland? Is there a need for this? So I started to put the feelers out and, people were generally quite interested. You're never going to get like people saying no to these ideas. I often find you get people like suggesting, what do you think of this idea? Nobody's ever going to say no. There's always going to be a demand for, for, for most things, isn't there? There is, but you can also get met with a wall of silence. True. And I, th- I think because actually the other organizations are so well regarded that, you know, because people are aware of them, that there was that feeling of, well, they're doing such a good job, you know, so... Do people feel that that's enough for them? So, um, so yeah. So then, when people start to say, "Well, actually, I think a Scottish kind of network would be a really, really good idea," that's that's what sort of set me on the road. And then, you know, I was on Twitter asking people who wants to be involved, and a couple of people, uh, Brain and Sammy, were the f- um, who are based in Scotland, were the first two people to respond, and we started to put together ideas for. Um, for the physical symposium that we were going to have in June. When did you come up with the idea, or put you know put the feelers out to see if there was interest? When was this? It was it was a year ago. It was July last year. So in that time, there was enough support for it. You got a few a few people on board to help, and you thought, yeah, we'll we'll get a symposium a day a day was it a day you were planning? It's a full day, uh, yeah. complete with a Kaylee at the end. Brilliant, brilliant. That should have been happening. Yeah, in I think it was around June the fifth this year, but then obviously the pandemic happened. And so we had to had to pause that. So tell me about what you'd planned for the symposium to begin with, because I think one of the interesting things about it is that it's the it's the LGBT STEM community that's the common denominator essentially, isn't it? And so you've got um, ironic, well, not ironically, uh, you've got incredible diversity, not just in uh, LGBT in STEM, but also in I assume the the topics people are presenting on and that kind of stuff. Yes, that can actually be a real challenge because, you know, you want people to be in in an environment where they can talk about what they're doing. But you also, because it is such a, people are from such diverse backgrounds, it can be very easy for people to lose track of what people are talking about because, you know, people become too, if people start describing their work in so much detail and you don't have a background in it, it's very difficult. So one of the things that we did was we tried to encourage a, a breadth of, or we tried to develop a program with a breadth of topics, but also making it quite clear to people, please remember that although people are generally going to be from some kind of scientific or engineering or what have you background, to make this a broad topic. And we also, as well, try to incorporate some talks more on diversity within within the field. So it wasn't simply research talks. It was more, let's have talks about people's experiences of being part of the LGBT community 
within STEM. And uh, let's have like a panel discussion where people who actually work on improving equity and um, diversity within STEM have learned more about their opinions on this and what people can do to maybe improve things in their own workplaces. So where were you planning to hold it in uh, June? So that would have been um, at the Playfair Library in Edinburgh. So it was going to be a really nice venue. And now you've had to pivot, make it all online, which I'm sure is the most incredible challenge, but also has its <laughs> benefits too, from what I'm thinking. But uh, tell me about changing it from an in-person meeting to an online one. Yeah, it was quite an about turn. You know, initially we put, put out a message saying that we were we were cancelling the symposium, but that we hoped to replace it with a virtual symposium. But at that time, kind of had no idea precisely what we were going to do. And you know, I spent a few days just a bit down in the dumps trying to figure out what we were going to do because we were so excited. And then it occurred to me that, well, actually, although this was meant to be initially a, a Scotland-focused meeting, that I actually presented the opportunity of meeting people from across the world yeah, and yeah. connecting with different networks from across the world, which we just we simply didn't have because of resources, time, those kind of things, uh, with the physical symposium. So... What I did was there are some really great resources online, actually, uh, with I think there's, uh, there's Wikipedia pages with details of scientists who are openly part of the LGBT community. There, there's also websites, um, 500, how was it, 500 uh, queer scientists yeah. and those kinds of resources where you can start to then reach out to people. Uh, so what I did, first of all, checked with our funders. Were they happy for us to use somebody? for an online platform, once I found that out, then started approaching people and saying, look, you know, we'd really love to hear from you. And are you interested in giving a talk? And only reason a couple of people gave that they wouldn't participate was because they were already booked for that date. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, everybody has said, yes, we would love to be involved. And it's also, it's, it's given us the opportunity to make the program even more diverse in terms of, as well as having a panel discussion on, so it's called Equity, Advocacy, and Justice, and discussing those kind of topics as relate to the LGBT STEM community. We're also hosting a drag in STEM panel. So these are, are people who work in STEM, but they're also drag artists. Amazing. Please tell me you have a catwalk. <laughs> there is sadly no catwalk since it's virtual. If it was, if it was physical, maybe we would. <laughs> um, but, you know, we've, we, managed, we, we have uh, two drag queens, two, two drag kings, from across the world who like I say are also research scientists and trying to have a discussion about okay well what what attracted to performing drag and how you know some of them they actually they integrate the two so they use uh, drag as a science communication tool and so trying to learn more about that and try to show just the diversity that exists within the field and the creativity as well and the creativity, which is off off the scale, brilliant, brilliant. Yes, I I, th I think that's a that's a real bonus to having it online. That all of a sudden, you can have you know geography is no longer a limitation. Absolutely, time zone maybe. Well, what we've actually done so it's it's actually going to be a really long day because we were thinking about time zones and trying to make it more inclusive. So you know, it starts at nine a.m. in the UK, but it finishes at something like 
I, I need to work there exactly, but it's going to finish at around 2 p.m. California time. You know, it's like, so it's kind of rolling. So it's, it, but obviously, you know, we're not going to say to people, well, you have to stay for the whole day, you know, but it's to try and make it more inclusive to people within different time zones as well. And I don't know if you saw this, but we actually, we got, uh, I got an email yesterday. Yes, yesterday. That we also have uh, Nicholas Sturgeon on board. Brilliant. So um, I, I actually reached out to the Scottish government and asked, would anyone be interested in uh, speaking or delivering a message? Is she going to drop it into her, her daily coronavirus briefing? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I can. It'd be brilliant. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so that she's going to provide a video message uh, to play at the start of the, the meeting. So we've got the backing of the Scottish government. It's important, I imagine, that it started out as how do how do we build a community, a network in Scotland? And while it's amazing to have a worldwide diverse community all of a sudden, how are you doing anything in particular to try and maintain that that core feeling of community in Scotland um, with with the online one? So I think, you know, having the introduction by the likes of Nicola Sturgeon, um, trying to show that, you know, this is a, an initiative that has its roots in Scotland. And what the ideal situation would be is that going forward, that those the networks that are built kind of benefit networks in Scotland. So we need to figure out what events we're going to host after this. But this will kind of be a springboard to say, look, this is a worldwide thing. It would be quite easy to for everything to become very diluted and just say, oh, yeah, we're always just going to chat to you know people from around the world. Um, but I think what it can kind of show communities in Scotland is that people like us exist everywhere mm-hmm. and that it's good to actually reach out to those communities and to learn from each other and um, see what what things are other people doing in other communities that can be applied to Scotland. And maybe start to establish some working groups where we can discuss what the needs are for Scotland. Yeah, this is like a springboard event, really, and then yeah, yeah, to learn from. You want it to also to make Scotland an attractive place for researchers, scientists in all sorts of fields to come, to feel safe, yeah. to feel wanted, to have them a ready network to kind of dip their toe in, so to speak, to 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 see what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Scotland is such a progressive nation, anyway. And I think it's really nice to be able to showcase that to the world. That this, like I said, this has got its roots in Scotland. And you know, please come and see us. <laughs> yeah, I've got a couple more questions about about this before we start to wrap things up, Matthew. This this whole thing was uh, germinated a year ago. You've not even had a symposium yet. But what going forward in, into the future would you like to see kind of happen? Do you want an, an annual symposium? What other ideas have you got for continuity? I think an annual symposium would be a great idea. I think it'd be really nice having had this virtual one to then host a physical one yeah. with an act- with a Kaylee, you know, next year. Bring everyone together. You know all those people that I've met online yeah. and can then actually come together and, and meet physically? I think that would be really, really nice. It'd be one hell of a party. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that would be really, really nice to have that. And also... Um, so one yeah one idea is you know is there a need for working groups to discuss different topics that um, need that people feel need addressing um, and another idea which it's kind of similar to what some others have done is to start building 
an online uh, repository of like interviews with um, LGBT researchers uh, to you know just talk about a bit about what they do very, in very broad terms and a little bit about their journey to where they are and if they're willing to you know talk about their experiences of being LGBT and part of the science community and because I think you know the one thing that's said getting said more commonly now and I think it's very true is you can't be what you can't see yes yes I was just thinking of that and I think to have resources like that even if other people are doing somewhat similar things the more resources like that that are available the better you know that if for example now that Scotland has um, announced their LGBT inclusive curriculum for example mm-hmm. that you know in science class could you you know play a couple of videos and say look these are different scientists from different backgrounds whether you know it's um, from the LGBT community or other backgrounds that are also other minority backgrounds would be helpful. One last question. I feel like this should have been the first question. When is when is the online symposium? And <laughs> is, is registration still open or have you filled up the internet? <laughs> um, have it, I mean, we've almost filled the internet, but not quite. Um, so we have, it's actually across two days. So the first day is the 26th of August and that's our virtual poster session, which will be hosted uh, primarily on Twitter. And then we have the main symposium, which is on the t- two days later, on the 28th of August. Uh, registration is still open. Uh, we have, in total, we have 500 spaces to fill, and the majority have gone. And it's free to register. I can give you the the address if you want. Yeah, read them out, because I think a lot of your stuff is done via the Twitter uh, handle. So please tell us what that is just now. So the Twitter handle is uh, The STEM Village. I, of course, will retweet all of this off the off the podcast <laughs> account for what, it, for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> Every bit helps. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's STEM Village. Um, and the the website is uh, The STEM Village. Wait. The stemvillage.co.uk forward slash register. If people Google it, these things usually turn up. Does anybody know website addresses off by heart anymore? I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, so it's there are still spaces. It's free. And there are also, if you're interested in presenting a poster, there are still spots to fill for poster presentations, which will remain open until the 3rd of August. Brilliant. Best of luck with that, Matthew. I, I, I really hope that Thank you. Uh, gets a lot of positive recognition and and attention um because i think I, I think it's i think it's a really cool idea you've been absolutely relentless on kind of twitter promoting <laughs> it um but these things always take hard work to build a really strong cohesive network it feels like it's been really worthwhile yeah because it's you know it's had a lot of positive responses and i'm it makes me really happy that i got it started and that other people got involved with helping to make it happen yeah it's a little baby yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Great. Let's uh, let's wrap things up. What's for dinner tonight, Matthew? You you're you're a pretty handy chef or, or baker, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I do like to bake quite a lot, but I am not in charge of dinner tonight. Um, my husband's going to make um, something called arepas, which so he's Venezuelan. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of like a cornbread type thing. Basically, it looks like small pita breads, yeah. and then you can fill them with whatever you want, essentially. So I think tonight we'll be having that with. 
plantains and cheese and whatever else we've got in the cupboards. That sounds amazing, actually. I, lo- I love it's the sound of so that. so good. I love it. <laughs> he doesn't know he's cooking yet. So you do like baking then. Like everybody else, I've kind of, you know, refined my sourdough protocol. <laughs> if any other um, listeners out there are, are doing a bit of baking during lockdown, what are, what are your top baking recipes or, or baking tips? Oh, that's a good one. Um, so I actually, yeah, I started off when, when there was the, the big yeast short, uh, shortage, started off making sourdoughs. And then the second that yeast came back in stock, I was like, no, I'm going to go back to yeasted bread. <laughs> um, but yeah, I generally make, um, like the bread for the week. So I make a lot of bread. I guess like the science, the top tip is if it doesn't work the first time, just keep refining it, keep trying. That's, that's pretty Probably accurate. I, I I've made some right right fugly looking loaves, but they all taste fine. <laughs> exactly, that's the main thing. Except for the loaf that I forgot to put the salt in. That was pretty grim for a week. <laughs> I've done that as well, and yeah, you have to really make yourself eat it. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a lot of spare time now that you're not PhDing. I mean, I've no doubt that STEM Village uh, can can fill that that void. But um, do you do you do a bit of reading or TV or outdoor pursuits or what do, you, what do you like to do in your spare time actually a bit of all of those things so i think now that things are relaxed a bit more we're planning to go on a few hikes um we're planning to maybe go camping in august um so you know i like to do a bit of that especially living in scotland where you know everything's so beautiful i'm kind of all watched out i think i've watched so many things during during lockdown but uh we're still watching a couple of things so um, there's a BBC show called I May Destroy You. Okay. It's really good. What's that about? Really, really good. What's it about? So that one, actually, maybe this is not a good one for podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Let's change that one. <laughs> so watching Mrs. America, because <laughs> I May Destroy You, it's, it's, it's really, really good, but it's actually, it's about sexual assault. So maybe not. People can Google that, yeah. but it, is it a drama yeah. then? A drama. So it's kind of like, uh, even though it's about such a dark topic, it's kind of a somewhat of a comedy drama. Okay. Um, and the the person who brought it and is the main character in it, she is um, she's amazing, and she uses some of her personal experiences to create the character. And some of the comedy comes in more because the character doesn't necessarily know how to respond to the events that have happened in her life, and it's just it's. It's an incredible show. I'll take your recommendation for that. And it sounds like you, you've given us enough there that we can go and find out more if uh, <laughs> if if, yep. if we finished watching all of Netflix. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. Um, how can people find out more about you, uh, your science? Uh, we've already covered STEM Village, so we don't need to talk about that. But um, you know, they can Google you, to be honest. You've you've written enough blog posts, and you'll come up that way. But uh, how how's it good to talk uh, to talk to you? Um, if people want to find out more about what I'm doing in terms of science, um, I guess my main Twitter account, which is MC Sinton, um, that would be the main one. And people can drop me a message, or they can see the endless things that I retweet. Very into your miniature plants at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, I have. That's that's the other thing that's keeping me busy. <laughs> I've always loved gardening. Honestly, the house is overrun with plants because I keep forgetting that these things are going to grow big. But I really like buying the small ones, partly because it's satisfying and also because I'm really tight with money. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, I do keep forgetting that some of the plants that I've got, which are babies now, they grow to sort of six, seven feet tall. I'm like, mm, 
probably shouldn't buy too many. Are your ceilings that, that high in your flat? They are actually quite high. They should be able to accommodate it. Bit of room for a good Christmas tree then. Definitely. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Matthew. Uh, have a good day. Thank Take you very care. Much. We'll see you later. Thanks, David. Hello again. Thanks for sticking around this long. I hope to keep these conversations relatively bite-sized for your consumption. If you want to get in touch about anything we've talked about or with any comments, you can find us on Twitter at at AFTB underscore podcast. Enjoy the rest of your day and have an amazing week, folks. (laughs) 